0: All right, if you had a Bible, if you open up to Exodus chapter 20, that's where we're uh, we're at. We're going straight through Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, there's a bunch on the back table you're welcome to get. just pretend you're getting coffee and then you can uh, uh, grab a Bible. Um, thanks for joining us on the summer. The school is nice enough to let us open up, so we've got a little air going through here. We are going through uh, the second half of Exodus and the second half of uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, and I don't know how popular it is. I grew up in the church, but I don't remember how often the uh, pastor went straight through a really long Old Testament book, like 40 chapters. Um, we've been in it in September with a couple of breaks in between, but uh, it seemed like the Old Testament was something that you didn't really talk about very often or you referenced every now and then because it was old. I mean, that was kind of the nature of it, and by the title Old Testament, it's kind of like The Old Testament is archaic and outdated and irrelevant, and you maybe read it every now and then, but the New Testament is where we, you know, spend our time. Um, It wasn't even called the Old Testament until one of the early church fathers named Origen kind of divided it up, um, at least labeled it as such as the Old Testament and the New Testament. And before that time, the Jews understood the Old Testament as the writings and the prophets and the law, and so it was just called the Scripture. And it wasn't this old thing. It was their livelihood, if you will, was the place where they got their identity. And Jesus, when he was growing up, he read the Old Testament, and he believed the Old Testament. And he was, the Bible says, he grew up and learned, and he was doing that through the Old Testament. When he um, began his ministry, he read from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. When he was uh, arguing and fighting off the temptations of Satan, he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. And so Jesus uh, referenced the Old Testament not as a bunch of myths and fables, but as actual history, and he believed and taught, as you read the New Testament, that Moses was a real person, and although there's some argument on whether or not Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Jesus believed he did, and he referenced Moses quite a bit, he actually taught directly nine of the Ten Commandments, um, and he therefore endorsed the law as much as any law-abiding Jew would at the time. Um, he even said in John 5.46, as he was rebuking the Pharisees, who were Bible-thumping freaks, said, Look, if you guys are such Bible-thumpers. If you would have believed Moses, which he, the law, which they had read hundreds of times and actually memorized, you would believe me because Rose, um, Moses wrote about me. And he said, basically all Moses wrote about pointed to me. And the fact is, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, however you would like to describe it, isn't detached from the New Testament or the New Covenant. It is, in fact, a fulfillment and a renewal of that Old Covenant. And it's important for us to know that foundation, not because we need to know our history, because it has relevancy for us today in seeing how Jesus fulfilled all of that. Now, Jesus, and I should say the Old Testament Christians, weren't much different from what we would call Christians today. Because they were all waiting for Jesus to come, and they were all waiting for Him to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. And today, I and anyone who names the name of Jesus is still waiting for Jesus to come a second time to fulfill completely all of the promises that come after that. So we're in the same boat in a lot of ways. And so now we read both the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, And although we see the law, we know that it's good and it reveals that our God is righteous and that there's justice, even if we don't see it played out in this world. We know that those who are evil get punished, which is a good thing, unless it's us, which we don't like. But generally, we like to see that there is perfect justice. And we see that in Jesus alone is where salvation comes, not the law. Bottom line, it doesn't matter how good a person is. You are. You will never be good enough. But I'm not a murderer. Have you lied? Or any other of the 600 and some odd laws that tried to show how sinful we were. To say that no one perfectly could do it except Jesus. And so salvation comes from faith in Jesus alone, by grace alone. And as Jesus comes into our life, He brings the Holy Spirit who enables us to live and fulfill all the things of the law. Because He has. And so it is possible by the power of the Spirit, but it's not possible on your own. Good luck. It won't happen. It is impossible. So, in other words, those who love Jesus, first and foremost, are the only ones that can claim that they love God. And those that love God are the only ones who can claim or even be able to love people in the way that God says you're supposed to love them, not in the ambiguous way we kind of define love today. We just love this, love that. Well, God defines what love is very particularly. And so the first four commandments, as Brad talked about, answers the question, what does it mean to love God? So if someone asks you, do you love God? There's some evidence. It's not a checklist. It's more of, well, this is who, what loving God, or what it looks like. A person who believes that would look like. And then the second six commandments answer the question, okay, well, how do I love people? And it gets very particular, and I think it's very tempting for us, again, to make a list and go, well, I don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, and feel very self-righteous. And I think that a reading of that is the same thing the Pharisees did, where they made their list, and they made their checklist, and Jesus showed up and said, well, maybe you didn't commit adultery, but have you ever lusted? Ooh, stuck there. And so it shows us, without question, how sinful we are, but it shows us how Jesus is turning everything in this broken, dirty, messed up world right with how we respect authority, how we love, how we hate, how we use our words, how we work, and even how we think. So we'll go into Exodus 20 and we'll read the commandments that have been posted all over the place and no one really knows what they mean. ...other than beyond just this moral code. But I think it's much more than that. So here we go. Uh, We'll start in verse 12. We've gone through the first four. And we'll start with commandment six. Uh, In verse 12 it says this. Honor your father and your mother... ...and your days may be long... ...in the land that the Lord is giving you. Verse 13. So seventh commandment. Sorry, fifth and sixth. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery... You speak to us, and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So we have the Twelfth Commandment, and as I said with the First Commandment, sets the stage for all ten, because the First Commandment is always broken, that being have no other gods before me we always put a god before Jesus whenever we sin and so the first commandment's broken before any other commandment and in this one it also puts a lot of emphasis on setting the foundation for the remaining six and that is to honor your father and mother as their days may be long now we have to go back to creative order if you will or, or creation understand what we're talking about, or we end up just being in a place where we're like, yeah, obey your parents, kids, and we think that this is a commandment just for our kids, which is a fantastic one to use. When they ask, why I should do this, Dad, there was a time when the answer, because I said so, was acceptable. It's called before the fall. Okay, That's pretty much what God did. Do this, why? Because I'm God. That's supposed to work in our homes doesn't work in mine. Maybe it works in yours, but it doesn't prevent me from continuing to use it. Why should I do this, Dad? Because I said so. Just follow. And there will be a day in eternity when my son will respond like he should righteously and without sin. When he say, yes, Father, may I do anything else for you? Or let me go the extra mile for you, Dad. Not happening yet, but that day, I pray, is coming. But there was a time when that was the case. And so when we see this, we have to go back to creation and remember that. Okay, God created Adam, right? He created this beautiful world and then He brought Adam and Eve into this world and He gave them food. And I think it was snappy, wonderful, awesome, fruit filled food. I mean, it was good, okay He gave them shelter, beautiful garden. It wasn't like storms coming through. They could probably well, if they could run around naked, then you know it wasn't getting too cold, so it was a nice humid atmosphere, right? They gave them uh, beautiful animals to enjoy and pet. So it's like, hey, Mr. Lion, you know, he could pet them, which would be really cool, and they wouldn't snap your hand off. It would be, you know, it was enjoyable, beautiful mountains, everything to look at. It was gorgeous. And he gave them education. He taught them about things. I'm pretty sure he uh, obviously taught them about the, his law, but he probably had to teach Adam a little bit how to use a shovel or a stick, whatever he's using to cultivate the land. But he taught them and he gave them. Love And he said, Adam, you're in charge of all this. You're in charge of the animals. You're in charge of the plants. You're in charge of this woman and protecting her that I gave you. You're in charge of it. Then he said, you guys, Adam and Eve, you guys are exclusive. There's no friends with benefits in this world, right? You are exclusive to one another. You are going to have lots of sex because you've got to populate a whole world. So enjoy yourself. Have fun. That's what he told them. Then... All pre-fall. He said, Adam, you've got a job. You are to work. Work is part of it. It wasn't laborious. He enjoyed it. He said, cultivate all of this. This garden I planted here, make the rest of the world look like that. Okay, Cultivate it. Build it. And Eve, help him with his work. Set an order to things. And then, finally, he said, enjoy on that seventh day. Enjoy your work. Enjoy the provision." Eat of the fruit of your labor as you cultivate and grow and, and have fun. So in this world without sin, there's, there's you know, drink and no alcoholism. There's food and no gluttony. There's, it's a beautiful, perfect world. He gave them everything. And he said, just don't eat from that. That one tree over there, you see it, Adam? Yeah, don't eat from that tree. So he set an order. And God, what amounts to the perfect father, the perfect parent, sets the family rules and everyone has their family rules right and some are good some bad my mom and dad had all their family rules and we used to i mean it was like she would put the fear of the lord in us when we went to other people's homes and so we'd always get good reports because i was a really good kid because i would go and the one thing she always say was eat everything that's offered to you that was one of the family rules we had so i really only one food i dislike i had ahi last night It looks disgusting. Fantastic. So I'll eat just about anything, right? Cooked carrots I can't eat. I hate cooked carrots. They taste like pure crap. I just can't eat them, okay? I like carrots, but you cook them, something happens, I can't eat them. But I guarantee you, I went to many a home where, for some reason, everyone likes to put cooked carrots in everything. Stew, whatever, just cooked carrots in a bowl. doesn't make any sense to me. Here, Sammy, boom. I would eat every single one of those cooked carrots, even though I felt like throwing up because I had a family rule and I honored my mom and dad knowing that I represented them in that place. Disgusted me, but I obeyed. Now, God in this sense is, He is this provider. He gives them everything. He is the judge. He tells them what's right and wrong. He is the teacher. He is the boss. He is the parent to Adam and Eve here. He is everything. Now, respect for authority, respect for the structures that he has placed is essential to this world. And it's part of how things were created. There is an order to think. There is an authority. And the most basic relationship is parenting. And if we only stop there, it sounds like it's just a commandment for kids, and it's not. It's a commandment for all of us and it's a question about are we going to live according to God's designs for how things work or not? Are we going to follow the rules, so to speak, that Dad set up? Or are we going to do our own thing? It's essential to everything because our world wants to say there are no rules. And the reality is, there are. And we don't necessarily have the wisdom to understand why God has established the way things are in a certain way. But He has. And we have no right, because He's God, to tell Him His rules are wrong. But that's pretty much what happened in the Garden of Eden. They said, we don't like your rules, we think you're wrong, we can do it better, whatever you want to characterize it as. And so, as much as today, I think, children honor or dishonor their parents. Or their parents honor or dishonor their bosses. Or they honor kids, dishonor or honor their teachers. All of that comes as a reflection of how you honor or dishonor God and His authority. Because He's the one who's placed those things in for us. And with parents, it's even more convicting. Because the Israelite culture was, the parenting part I could say of the culture, was integral to their identity and their success. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says the parents were in charge of teaching the ways of God, the character of God. That was essential to what their role was. And so as they're obeying God in a culture that loves God, ultimately they are fulfilling what it means to love God, to actually become a worshiper. They're teaching their kids how to be a worshiper. And I realize because we live in a broken world, We have some really bad parents. We had bad parents. Some of us are bad parents. Some of us see bad parents. That's as a result of sin. But the truth is, as a parent, and our parents to us, because they think, well, I don't got any kids. You got parents? You sure? Yes, positive. Everyone does. We have elders, so to speak. Anyone who is in authority over us that we are to respect. And we, as parents, we have to understand that to our kids, for example, and you to my kids, also, you represent what God's like to them, if you claim to be a Christian. My sons learn most about what God the Father is like through how I father them. And they learn what God the Father is like through how my wife mothers them. What a huge responsibility that, to be quite honestly, I suck at most of the time. I make huge mistakes as a parent. But I recognize and I'm committed to pursuing that because I know that my authority isn't just my own, it's a reflection of God's. And what's awesome is that Jesus comes and says, well, I know you stink at it. In fact, he says you stink at all these commandments. But he doesn't just say, hey, let me live the perfect life, look, you couldn't do it. He comes and lives this perfect, obedient life, and then shows us how to take it a step further and how to actually be a worshiper more than just an obedient person. And he comes and he obeys his Father perfectly. Even though he knows what his dad has asked him to do is going to kill him and result in his death. He obeys all the way to the cross for the glory of the Father in obedience to Him, even prays on the night before, if there's any other way, God, but let Your will be done, He trusts God no matter how bad it got. Even though he hated the authorities over him, the politicians that were making it hard, the religious leaders that were condemning him wrongfully, he never complained, he never whined, he never refuted. He simply obeyed because he knew, regardless of how those authorities treated him, he trusted that God was in control all the time. He always obeyed Dad. And that's huge. Yes, it's good for kids, but it's also good for parents. Second commandment, or I should say, sixth commandment, says you shall not murder. That's easy. I don't kill anybody. Okay? But again, we start talking about, okay, what does it mean to worship God beyond just not murdering somebody? Because I will be really good at that because I've not murdered, so it's 100% for me. Right? Now, with the creative order established as God's in in control of all things... This commandment becomes a lot easier to fulfill and understand what he's talking about. Because it's really interesting. This The Sixth Commandment is huge for everyone in culture. Opponents use it to fight abortion, right? Sixth Commandment, and I think they should. They use it to fight euthanasia for old people, and they should. They use it to not kill criminals. I don't know if they should, okay? But they use it. Everyone likes the Sixth Commandment. Oh, nope, shouldn't murder, shouldn't murder, shouldn't murder, and translated in other translations it'll say thou shalt not kill which is a lot more ambiguous than murder but it's a commandment that speaks to the value of life specifically I think our hatred and the expression of it now let me just tell you that God forbids any murder that results murder which is very particular in Hebrew it talks about a, uh, a violent crime against a personal enemy now typically those violent crimes, you don't wake up one day and go, I think I'm going to kill somebody today. That sounds like a good idea. Typically what happens with all of us is we get angry. And anger, just like the force, right? Come on, Star Wars. Anger leads to hate, hate you know, all those things, right? So you, you, you hate, and the expression of that hatred is what can become sinful. Jesus was angry, There's nothing wrong with being angry. The Old Testament says God hates stuff. But the question is, are we hating what God says He hates, or are we just hating stuff and people or whatever we happen to choose? It is okay to hate what God hates, and He hates sin. I hate sin. I hate, hate sin in me. I hate sin in my kids. I hate sin in the world. I hate sin, and God hates sin. And I will even go so far as to say it is okay to kill the things God says we need to kill and it's not murder. What it is I think is respecting the authority of God and not taking it upon ourselves to stand in God's stead and decide what justice is going to be. It's submitting to God saying you're in control of all of life but What that means is that when we break this commandment, it means we step out from under God's authority and we let our vengeance and our anger overwhelm us and we start hating people, killing them with our thoughts, or killing them practically with our hands. Now, it's unlikely that uh, many of us are actually going to become murderers, but statistically it could be one in here, literally. But I don't think that God is necessarily so concerned about that as much as he is the hatred. Now, without question, saying thou shalt not kill doesn't mean you should never kill. People always pout off. I don't believe that the Bible promotes pacifism. The Bible promotes, you know, it's always turn the other cheek. Because if I walk in and my wife's getting beaten by somebody, I'm not going to say, hey honey, Make sure you flip over and turn the other cheek to them. I'm going to end whoever that person is, and they are going to see Jesus real quick. Okay? The fact is, we have the right and the responsibility, if we actually value life, to defend ourselves and defend the innocent, and that's not murder. Moreover, I do believe that there are times to go to war, and there are times to exercise capital punishment. But all of that is dictated by when God says it should happen, not just men. So therefore, whenever a life is taken, there should be pause and contemplation, but there should always be decision. And I'll tell you right now, our world could do very well with killing a lot more people. Now it sounds bad, but man, there are some criminals out here. you got to understand, most of the offenses in the Old Testament... Adultery and others were capital offenses you were stoned for. We've gone to the opposite extreme, and we barely kill anyone for anything, and I think that's a travesty to God's justice said there are certain things you should kill for. But it's no different than spanking your children. If you spank your child in anger and vengeance, and I feel good, and that's why you're getting it, whew, relief. Sin. Sin. But if you never spank your child and you continue to let them go on and live in this rebellious way, that in of itself is a disrespect and a dishonor to God who says life is valuable. Respect and authority is valuable. And so we have to be careful because taking a human life without question should be rare, but it should happen. And in Jesus we see very clearly he could have came down and unleashed when he was going to get arrested and Peter's like, sword, he cuts the guy's ear off, he's like, dude, what are you doing? I could totally wax these guys instantly. Okay, not even with a thought that Peter felt bad. It's true. He could have ended it at any moment, but he chose not to. He chose to get beaten. He chose to get shamed. At the same time, God killed him on the cross. God killed him. Isaiah 53. God killed him. And so... Sin is going to demand death at some level. Because that is, in fact, valuing life. So when we say, thou shalt not murder, it's much larger. It's much larger. And those who love God love not only grace, but they recognize the purpose for and reason for grace. And they love God's justice. Seventh commandment, you should not commit Adultery. Um, this was a difficult one, writing the kid's curriculum for it. Because what do you tell a kid about adultery without you know, telling them about adultery? So, we didn't tell them about adultery. We talked about, uh, hopefully, what it means to be married and what a husband and wife are supposed to do. How to be a gentleman, how to be a lady, those types of things. I don't know, I didn't teach it, but that's what I told them to teach. So if they said, adultery, adultery, don't have sex with someone, you know, then that wasn't my fault. But, it's much larger than just Adultery, I think, in the the sense that we might understand it. But God not only wants to govern our authority and our hatred, but also our love. And so much so, he says, in his Ten Commandments, the only things that he wrote down with his own finger, marriage is huge. Relationships are important to him. It was part of God's creative order from the beginning. And although I think some people probably have the gift of singleness, I think it's actually a gift, a rarity. I think most people are meant to be married. I think most people don't understand what it means to be married or understand how a husband and wife look and are supposed to act and how they can worship God in their roles. But the biggest rule, he says, about marriage in here, he begins with is you have sex with one person. One person. And he said adultery is sex with a married person that's not your married person. Okay? Okay. That's it. That's the only place to have sex. You can justify it any other way you want. Creative order is very clear. It wasn't Adam and Eve and Tina and Betty and Kelly and whoever else. It was Adam and Eve. You guys are together. His standard of beauty was her. That's it. There was no other standards of beauty. There was no one else left to fulfill. She was supposed to give it all. And vice versa. They had one another. And I think that, as I said before, it was so serious. Adultery was such a serious offense that it was a capital offense. That's why you have people in the New Testament when Jesus comes upon a woman caught in adultery and they're about to stone her, they're fulfilling the law. And he condemns them for their hypocrisy in many ways. But we have a world that's trying to define itself by sexuality. And they were trying to make their own rules about how things work. And adultery is just the beginning, but it's certainly uh, not the, uh, the end of where things have come. The faithfulness to our spouses is particularly in this. And this is God's truth. These are God's rules. And this is coming from someone who has to live in a context where that's been completely dis- disrupted in my own extended family. But God's rule says faithfulness to heterosexual, monogamous. Lifetime relationships is what is his design. And fulfilling that design demonstrates faithfulness to him. That, someone who worships God, someone who worships God and loves God, believes in that design. And you cannot argue, cannot say, well, God changed his mind. Culture has adjusted. God isn't interested in changing culture and how our ideas change with what we want to do. God has established a design from the beginning. And I certainly believe that all sexual issues of that nature, all marital issues of that nature, if you've got a screwed up marriage, if a guy, you're struggling with lust, which is typically physical forms of that, then ladies, you struggle with emotional lust all the time, which typically lead to affairs. I would argue that the problem has very little to do, although partly with your relationship and the love you have there, as much as it has to do first and foremost with your love for God. That's where it begins. But you'll notice our world doesn't approach it that way. They think the problems that you have come from the relationships. Of that. Even the Christian world, they give relationship books, relationship this. We put all that stuff aside. It's about your love for God. If you love God, you love His designs, you love His rules. Now, you might not fulfill it perfectly, but it doesn't mean your desire is not to fulfill it. That is your pursuit. That's the commandment. Now Jesus shows us something that's very hard for people, especially with broken marriages. He shows us that this command requires faithfulness. And if for those who confess Jesus, this is the type of faithfulness that you've been given, and that's faithfulness to a bride who, without question, is a whore. So the Bible describes her, but so the Bible describes us. He is faithful to a bride who is sleeping around with everybody. He's faithful to a bride who doesn't want him. He's faithful to a spouse who has denied him. He's faithful to a spouse who's killed him. And just as he forgives them on the cross, he forgives them on the cross, knowing all of their brokenness, all of the you know, the ways that they've rejected him, he still pursues her. And so I think that many of us, for those who are married or those in a relationship, it's very easy not to commit adultery and feel good like you're sustaining a relationship. Well, Jesus didn't stop there. That's where it starts. And then he pursued his bride. I've learned that in the last even three weeks. Again, refreshing, where your wife sits down and says, I don't feel pursued, but I haven't had a affair. I haven't looked into anything. But have you loved? Have you loved? Because we can all go through the emotions or the emotions with checking our list in a relationship with our marriage, in a relationship with our God. But the question is, have you really exercised love? He wants us to do more than just not sleep around. Commandment eight are, you shall not steal. The commandment to steal seems pretty obvious. You don't take stuff that's not yours. Okay. Commandment nine. No. Commandment eight is actually really disrupted me a little bit, because it's like, okay, stealing, they don't hear a lot about robberies anymore, but Israel had a little bit different view of property. Property was an extension of self. And you could steal a lot of different ways. You could steal someone's donkey, or you could steal by cheating them in some kind of, you know, exchange or business transaction, so they're actually being shorted and they don't know it, and you're, you know, getting money from cheating them. Now, I don't know how many people have gotten stuff stolen from them. I've gotten all kinds of stuff stolen. I've never got my, my house broken into, but if they broke into it, there ain't much to steal. But I've got my car broken into like three times. And it's really irritating. It's more than irritating. I've got my radio stolen, CDs, iPods, all kinds of junk that I had, little ear, those Bluetooth things, right, all stolen. And every time I've gotten to a point, I say, well, I guess they needed it more than I did, right? But I have to admit, and if you've ever had theft happen to you, it feels like you've just been invaded. Like your space has just been like, it's not the financial. I'm not going, oh man, do, 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 all this stuff i got to buy again. I'm never thinking of the financial loss. I'm always thinking like, ah, I just feel like I want to go scrub my car, you know, or do something to, to clean it up because I just feel like I've been invaded in some way. So I was wondering, like, why? Why does that feel that way? Why do people steal it all? I think at the core of it, it has to do with actually our work. See, we go back to the creative order again where Adam was given a job. He says, you will work and you'll get the fruit of your labor and you'll enjoy it, right? And when someone steals from us, it actually impinges on my dignity. It's an attack on my dignity because I worked for that. That was my work, and you just took that from me. And I see it all the time in group settings, too, because it's not just practical stuff. I see it when I'm teaching at school and I put kids in groups. I see it when I'm in groups like teams and leadership. I see it in our church where you've got a group of people, and that one guy that won't do anything, right? And he sits back and like just waits as everyone's working their tails off. And you're just like, bugged. I used to make this class where I made them have the shared grade. Right? So you have a group of five people and one guy's doing nothing but he's going to get the A because they've got the two honors kids in that group. And they're ticked. But they know that one guy knows he won't have to do anything because they so much want their 4.0 that they will do all his work just to get the grade. But it feels angry. They just
1: Angry about
0: it, dirty, yucky, they come and complain, and all it say is, yeah, what are you going to do about that? Because I wanted them to teach conflict resolution, but at the core of it, they were being stolen from. Their time, their energy, their resources. And you know, in most churches, it's like 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And for a while, it feels like, yeah, no, we're the 20%.
1: We're the minority, and you're
0: feeling all strong, and after a while, you're like, "I." You know, you start getting bugged at them. Why? Because you're stealing, you know, for every, and I'm not, this is not my intent, but for every chair that someone else has to do, someone else didn't, right? And some of these guys who have got families are, you know, they're here till 1 o'clock trying to tear down. We've been here sometimes tearing down. There's like three people. You go, well, this is chairs. Oh, no, there's lots of stuff. And we start getting bugged because it feels like we're stealing and you look at Jesus, and he came, and he was a guy who had everything. He had all the wealth, anything that is, is worth anything, and he gave it all up and came and lived and worked as a man. He didn't come as a king. He came as a man, and for 30 years worked as a blue-collar carpenter. He worked. He worked. He didn't take the easy way out. He didn't cheat his way. Satan gave him an opportunity. He tempted to say, hey, man, easy way to glory. Get rich quick. Come on. I'll give you it all. Just worship me. Deny God. He's like, no. I'm going to do it God's way, even though it's going to be way slower. And way more painful. So for 30 years he worked in honor to God. For three years of his ministry he worked. And he worked every day to the point where he worked taking his own weapon of execution, the cross, to the hill where he would be killed. He worked so we didn't have to is the bottom line. And yet we work and we think our stuff is ours and we don't give anything to anybody knowing our Lord has given everything to us. And we hold on to our time, our energy, our resources, our few coins thinking it's mine. When in fact Jesus came and said, here's what it means. Stealing has way more to do with work than it does taking stuff. And not only should you work hard, but you should also give. Because I gave everything so that you didn't have to. And we don't work for materialism. We work to honor God. So think about this. I watched that movie Seven Pounds the other night. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin a little bit for you, but that's okay. Very beginning, they talk about this guy who is going to die, basically. And uh, in one of the scenes, as, as he's preparing for his death, he gives a lot of stuff away to help people. One of the things he does that was just striking to me is he gives his house, beautiful beach house, in California. And there's a woman who has a couple kids and she's abused and she's in a terrible situation she's trapped and it can't get out. And so he writes her a letter. First he goes there and says, I want to help you. And she denies. She's no, I don't want your help. He's like, I just want to help you. No, I don't want your help. Finally, she he gives her phone number. She calls and he gives her a letter and says, sign on this line. The house is yours. Don't ever call me again. He's going to be dead, so she probably can't. But don't ever contact me and don't ever ask why. I couldn't help but think what she would be willing to do if she could, like, you know, respond to him. Because someone always gives you a gift. You always want to give something back. Right? You get a gift, and it's always like, but I didn't get you anything. You know? So you give, you're give, given a house. And it's not some shack out in Darrington. It's like a house. Like a big house, right? You get this beautiful house, and you know if he's like, you know, all he needs you to do is, like, you know, clean the toilet. You know that she would clean that toilet so shiny that you could eat dinner off it because she'd be like, oh man, get me a house. And she's just like, I want to make his toilet look awesome, right? God has given us everything. He's given us the biggest gift that he can give, which is himself. There's nothing bigger than God. What about? No, nothing. If there was something bigger, he would have given it. But he gave himself, which is the largest, greatest gift ever that gives us life. And then he gives us jobs. And we don't work as if we're working for Him. We complain. We steal. We cheat our way through life. We don't actually work at all. And I think that this commandment, in many ways, is about us working for the Lord and working hard and realizing that it's not for us. It's for Him. It's for Him. And so we give of everything we have. Ninth commandment, getting down there, last two. And that is, says, you shall not bear false witness to your neighbor. Now, in a simple, like I said, desert society, most of the uh, crimes were capital punishments. If you lied on the stand to put someone away, you actually, uh, part of the uh, role of being a witness was that you actually had to be a executioner, depending on the crime sometimes. And that would prevent someone from lying and telling the truth in a, in a court case. Because if they lied, they would incur blood guiltiness and be guilty and be killed themselves. So first and foremost, we're supposed to tell the truth. That makes sense. You tell your kid he shouldn't be lying, here's where you go. You should not be lying. But it's obviously much more than that. When uh, When... Satan came, he's called the father lies by Jesus. When he came to the garden, he tempted Eve. He basically said, God is lying to you. He didn't tell you all the truth. There's more. And those who love God tell the truth. And those who don't not only believe the lies, but they tell the lies. And the thing about that's hard about that is that if you are constantly telling the truth, and that's lying, gossip, false truth, perpetuating it as in a false gospel, a false teaching, you don't love God. You don't love God. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 6, that what comes out of the mouth is evident of the heart. And I'm not talking about profanity, because I think there are times when a profane word actually is rather apropos for the moment. And I can break someone down without using a single profane word there is. It has nothing to do with the word as much as it has to do with the heart behind the word. And Jesus said that the words that are coming out of our mouth oftentimes are evidence of what we actually love, of what's in our heart. And that includes lying and gossip. And we ask ourselves, why do people lie? Let me just tell you quite frankly. People lie because they are more concerned with men's approval than God's. It's very simple. In the moment they lie, they are more concerned what people think of them than they are concerned what God thinks of them. Our life is supposed to be lived for the audience of one person. So we lie, and we gossip even as well, because that's just telling lies about people perpetuating false truths, basically to make ourselves look better than others and make us not feel so bad about maybe a mistake that we made. This actually requires honesty. Honesty. It also requires what Jesus says. Look, I came and loved you knowing all the mistakes you made, all the blemishes. You don't have to lie about who you are. I know who you are. You're not fooling anybody. But you are living for me. Now, men, Jesus says, I'm not going to reject you. But men reject us for way less than that. It's hard to keep up on lies. But as Jesus, Jesus lives through us, first of all, he gives us the confidence to do that gives us the authority to speak his rules and not ours. He gives us the boldness to speak it in opposition, especially when it's hard because, let's be honest, we lie and we don't tell truths or we twist it up because we're afraid people are going to be hurt. We're afraid they're not going to like us. We're afraid they're going to kick us out of whatever it is we're in. Speaking the truth, Jesus gives us the boldness to speak when it's not going to be very popular and people aren't going to like you. And he also gives us, I think, the grace to speak it in love. Which is hard, but it's still spoken. It's still spoken. Jesus came down and said some really tough things. And here what he said. You and I are sinners. We're broken. We're evil. We're trying to, you know, basically work our way to God. And we can't. And he says, you are evil and you need a Savior. Those are hard truths because we don't want to hear them. But, my prayers that I get learned to be a little more gracious, but here's what I've learned as a pastor. I have a lot of opportunity to tell people the truth about things. And I sit with them oftentimes and I try my hardest to say it in this like little beautiful snowball of grace. And I give them this little snowball of grace. Here, this is the truth. And it's like a grenade. Boom! Boom! And explodes. And they're like, How could you say that? I'm like, what do you mean? See, Jesus had the perfect way of saying, like, the right things at the right times. And sometimes those things were very, quote, mean according to our world. And if we are submitted to God's authority and we are committed to loving people and disliking and hating the things that God hates and we're committed to using words to his glory, we will speak words regardless, in love, but regardless of how they're received, knowing that a lot of people don't like to receive the truth. They really don't. Last one, we'll conclude with this, 10th commandment, you shall not covet, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servants, ox, donkey, or anything. This is a little bit different than all the others, and it shows me most how much I need to be saved, because how do you measure coveting? We're talking about our thoughts now. I mean, I can go, hey, I'll work for you, God, I'll say nice things about you, God, I will do all these, I will not murder anybody or hate anybody wrongly. I will love people, but gosh, my thinking now? And God says, look, your worship of me extends past any list you might make up to the point where even your very thoughts are supposed to be taken captive to me. Which, be quite honest with you, is the hardest thing for any of us to do. And the reason I think why he says covet here, because coveting talks about desire. And the Hebrew word itself is actually neutral. And you can desire good things and desire bad things. It only becomes bad when you desire something that's not yours. So what we're really talking about here is contentment. So you ask yourself what God has given you. Your material stuff, car, home, whatever. Your job, your family, your marriage, your kids. The kinds of kids Whatever He has given you in your life, your suffering, your condition, whatever it is, at the core of it, when we cover and we look at someone else, what they have or what they don't have that we do, and we look around and measure our life by what all everyone else has, not just materially, but everything, at the core of it is a pride that says, I deserve blank. Where God says, Why do you think that? I love you. I will provide for you. But I've given you this. At the core of coveting is a refusal to accept what God has given me or not given me. And a refusal to trust who he is and what he has for me. It's a refusal to admit, I think, that God actually knows what he's doing. That God's actually in control. And in my coveting personally, it shows me because I covet everything. This is the one thing that Paul talks about in Romans 7. He's like, the one commandment he picks on, talking about the law. He's like, I don't desire to covet, but because of the law, I covet everything. I covet all the time. I'm coveting everything and everyone. And he says, But there's grace in Jesus. I know that I cannot save myself. I know. I know that he has me. So Jesus came, and he says, look, by the nature of the fact that you covet, that this is so much deeper beyond the flesh of just stuff you can do, you need way more than just a moral list, like the, maybe the first nine commandments feel like. You need actual heart transformation. You need complete death, complete rebirth, and complete life, so that you can move out of the way, Sam, die, and let Jesus live through me. And it is only then, by grace that He gives, by faith in Jesus' life alone, the perfection that He has, can I actually fulfill these commandments. And it is possible. But I will tell you this, and I will read John chapter 4. If you look at these commandments, and recognize them, if you believe in Jesus you're never going to be able to fulfill them. without question... Wait, that's not what I want to say. If you believe in Jesus through Him alone, can you fulfill them? And apart from Him, no way. But if you struggle like with stealing and not working that hard, if you struggle with hatred for brothers and sisters and friends and anger, if you struggle... I'm not talking about like overwhelming it, like constantly. If you struggle with adultery, then you're always looking at every other woman but your bride? If you struggle with all of these things, all the time, your words, it is not about being a better person. It's about, quite frankly, your love for God. And I would question whether or not you lo- You will never love Him perfectly. But what is the heart of your desire? And I would, before I, and I sit down with you, I would start with the gospel before I would start with giving you a list of behaviors you should do. And that's what the Bible says. I'll close with this and we'll pray. 1 John 4 13 says this By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, which hating your brother is breaking any of those commandments... If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the command we have for men whoever loves God must also love his brother. God's love for us causes us to love him, which causes us to love others. Quite simply. Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory for your law. Father, it reveals how holy and righteous and perfect you are, how loving you are to protect us from such things. At the same time, Father, it declares that I am broken and despairing and in need of something because I cannot love you perfectly. So I pray, Father, before I try to obey rules and I try to be a better person, Father, you will teach me to love you, to put you first to worship You, to speak highly of You, to arrange my life around You, and that by that I might love other people worshiping You, and as I love them, Father, they will see that I worship You. Save us by Your grace, Father, and when I fall short of following Your law, which I am not bound by but freed from, but when I fall short of following God, Cover me in the blood of Jesus, and love me as you love and see Him. And your Son's blood is the only way I may pray. Amen.